Father, open the eyes of our hearts as we read your word. We might find you there and you ministering to us and challenging us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please sit down. Well, we've talked a lot today about new beginnings, haven't we? The beginning of term. I always hate the beginning of term. It feels a bit weird. The, it's almost like the light is different at the beginning of September, and it sort of says, right, that's it, summer's over. Um, but it's also very exciting. Tom was talking this morning about having a new exercise book, and, uh, you know, we love the newness. But I wonder if we have any idea how new what Jesus brought by his life and death and resurrection actually was in terms of transforming lives, culture, the future, and our eternal hope. And what I think I'd like to do this evening is just to try and point out that we belong to something new, and that's not always going to be comfortable, and people probably aren't going to like it very much, but we are very, very different. Blessed are those who know they can succeed because they'll win. Happy are those who do all they can to get a huge following on TikTok. TikTok, TikTok. That's because I'm fancy and <laughs> like your friend. I'm getting it wrong. Okay, let's start again. Happy are those who do all they can to get a huge following on Facebook, for they will be self-satisfied. Happy are those who know how to find ways of pushing themselves or their agenda, for they'll get there first and they'll do a lot better than others. And heaven help us in the recent. Um, uh, race for the uh, conservative leadership. Happy are those who can ignore the collateral damage in their road to their goals because they will be successful. Now, if that sounds extreme, just look at a night's television and see whether that isn't roughly where we're at, that the world recognises that if we're going to be happy, we've got to be successful. And, of course, in some ways, that's absolutely right. We delight in the success of the kids who have done so well in their GCSEs or their A-levels or their degree courses. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's also something rather different about the way in which uh, Christians see it. If someone was to describe you, what are you actually like? anyone describe you. I'm not sure if I have, but it's a bit weird, isn't it? Am I on here? Yes, ma'am. Um, but what, are you, what is your character? What are you like? What are you like? What are your priorities? What are the things that stand out about you so that if someone had to describe you in half a dozen words, I wonder what they'd say. When you write a CV, an application for a job, you're not only trying to put across what you've done, but who you are, what you're like. And if you've ever had to read a whole load of those, you'll know that's exactly what you're looking for. What is this person actually like? What makes them tick? Where is the heart of what it means to be Chris, to be Anthony, uh, to be Clive? What is it that actually makes us the people that we are? And of course, Jesus, what made him tick, was not a bit what those people around him had expected. They had expected that when the Messiah came, he would have been very different. For the Jewish leaders, he was going to lead the people of Israel against their enemies, a kind of uh, David figure. 
for the zealots, he was going to break down all those barriers that had taken away their freedom. But his agenda was so different that they dismissed him. This can't be him. This is someone we don't recognize. But those who found it and who found him found the key to everything. Do you remember John 1? He came to his own people and they had no time for him. But for those who received him, he gave the power to become the children of God. So today's values, the values in which we live, are good in many ways. Don't get me wrong, self-esteem is hugely important. So much damage is done when people don't have self-esteem because they've been put down and they don't have a self sense of self-worth. I often say when it comes to bringing up children and adolescents that you can't actually praise them too much. If they're big-headed, they'll soon get it knocked out of them by the world. But they need to have a secure sense of who they are and that they are loved and valued and appreciated for everything that they are. And then we have this slightly bizarre um, little set of teachings from Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry. It's probable that Matthew collected together a, a range of teachings and put them right here at this point when Jesus is about to carry out his ministry. And it sets out something which is so totally different from the way of life of people then or even now that actually if we read it and really thought about it, it's groundbreaking, it's a distinctive lifestyle, it's different values and different ambitions. And it's not what it sometimes seems. Both Gandhi and Karl Marx described these verses as a very good way to live. If the world was like this, it would all be a better place. But they totally missed the point. It's not a moral code. It's not a way of dealing with the world so that the world can be a better place. That's not what Jesus was about at all. I can remember once giving a talk on the different kinds of systems that people think are going to work. Communism, capitalism, uh, democracy, hum humanism. All these different ways that people say, if only everybody followed this, we'd live in a much better world. But you know, none of them work because they're not as any better than the people who try to implement them. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So this isn't about a political system, an agenda for a good society. It's something much, much deeper than that. Sociologists will tell you that how you behave depends upon what you value. If you value health, you might clean your teeth. Um, that what you value determines the sort of person that you are. And that, in turn, will determine what you do. So what are the core values of the kingdom of Christ that makes them so different, so revolutionary, that if we get to know God properly and we really receive his Holy Spirit, we will have a new set of beliefs, a new set of values, a new set of uh, priorities. So the Beatitudes that we have here, it's a lovely word, isn't it? It comes from... Blessed, Beatus, it's not a new law to keep, but it starts with a recognition of how powerlessness, now that's a bit different, isn't it? Blessed are the powerless. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in a funny sort of way, these statements are like a journey, and this is where we start. This is the beginning of that journey. If we are poor in spirit, that doesn't mean that we're like Uriah Heep and we go around saying, oh, I'm no good, I'm useless. It means we come to God and we say, Lord, I've got nothing. There is nothing I can offer you. There is nothing in me which is of any worth except that you love me and that you call me and you sent Jesus to die for me. That's what being poor in spirit means not somehow being uh, groveling. It doesn't mean that we are self-abasing, but it's gratefully receiving the, the, the acceptance that we can only have because of God's grace and because of all that Jesus has done for us. Remember that story Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray and the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector here. I'm a good person. And the tax collector said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, who went away? Blessed from that encounter, it was the person who was poor in spirit. He came and he said, Lord, I'm sorry, I've got nothing to offer you, but I just lay at your feet and I just praise you that you love me and you receive me and you forgive me. It's all of your grace. I wonder how poor in spirit we are aware that we are. It might be quite painful to go back to that point. We might have done it when we first became Christians. To go back to the point where we admit before God that everything that we have is, as Paul said, as filthy rags. There is nothing. Our spirit is poor. And why is our spirit poor? You might like to ask God that question. It might be to do with hypocrisy and pride. It might be to do with a longing to think that we're okay. But actually, the only way we can start that walk with Jesus Christ is when we come poor in spirit. And yet amazingly rich, because we're told that if we are poor in spirit, God says, my kingdom is yours. You are part of that kingdom future that I have prepared for now and forever for those who enter into a relationship with me and that's the only way to go in. And then Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Well, I don't think he was particularly talking about those who have recently been bereaved um, because I don't think Jesus ever elevated suffering for its own sake, although he showed massive compassion for those who were suffering and mourning and grieving. But I think as it follows on from blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, mourn over their own brokenness, mourn over the brokenness of the world, sin with a capital S, death with a capital D. These are the things which mark our fallen world and God weeps and so should we. Aware of suffering, aware of sin. Just look at what's happening in Ukraine. Look at what's happening in terms of poverty, even in our own nation. Look at how broken our world is. And then look at how broken we are and how we are part of a system which has failed God in so many ways and God longs to give com comfort. Jesus said he'd come to bind up the brokenhearted. 
We live in a culture which is very largely escapist. It wants happiness. Have you seen these studies they've been doing recently about where's the happiest place to live? I saw something really shocking this week in the, the local news that comes out in the email. Woking is one of the most unhappy places to live. That's a bit depressing because I'm nearly in Woking. I hope Guildford's a lot better. I'm right in the middle. I know which side I'm going to belong to. But they do these studies, don't they? They measure the happiness of people as though happiness is the most important thing. Well, of course it's important. We want to be happy. But the pursuit of happiness can often lead to a kind of escapism, almost a kind of bright jollity. And we're told that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Grief over the fallen world. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And how he must grieve over Guildford and Woking. How he must grieve over people's cruelty and lostness, over sin and death. And we too must enter into that place in order to find that Jesus has transformed it. It's not easy and it's not comfortable. But tonight, are we willing to mourn? To mourn for all that's broken in our own lives, for all that's failed God, for all that makes us feel incomplete and troubled, and then take that out into our benighted world and then bring it to Jesus Christ who offers us comfort. Not a pretend comfort, but a real comfort because his kingdom is a kingdom in which there is the hope for renewal today for you and me in our lives as he remakes us by his spirit and for the world as his people try to transform it by his power and ultimately there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Blessed are the meek. We have a progression here, haven't we? We come poor in spirit and mourning over all that's wrong in us and wrong in the world and that makes us meek. Now let's think about meek. I don't think it means weak or some kind of doormat. Who can you think of who is meek? Of course, Jesus said, I am meek and lowly of heart. And yet he wasn't a doormat. He threw all those money changes out of the temple and he went powerfully silent to his death. But meek is about seeking the well-being of others. Meek is about caring about others. Jesus, when he'd said, I am meek and lowly of heart, it was in the same sentence as he said, and I won't put anything too heavy on you. I won't put a yoke on you that's going to make it impossible for you. So what is meek? It's not natural shyness or indolence. It's not nice inoffensiveness. It's a strong characteristic. It's a characteristic that is so different to the world that sometimes we miss it and we think that it's wrong. But it's about how I see myself. If I see myself as poor in spirit and aware of the sorrow and need of the world, then it isn't very becoming to then be someone who wants to boast and to come first and to push others aside in the, seek, in the, in the search for success. In Philippians, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus who though he was equal with God, considered that he didn't have to grasp at equality with God, but was obedient to death, even death on the cross, that's meekness. 
And how does that work itself out in practice? Well, for me, I think it means not being too sensitive about yourself. I mean, I'm standing up here thinking, I wonder what they're all thinking. You know, we do, don't we? We are self-sensitive, self-aware. It matters what people think of us. It matters tomorrow when we go to work or we're with our friends. What are people going to think? And we sometimes resent criticism because it makes us feel troubled and cross because someone's got at us and we didn't think we'd got it wrong, but they think we've got it wrong. And we are self-aware all the time. Oh, that's not fair. And what about me? And I don't feel this. And I feel that. And do you know what? I don't think that's what meekness is. I think meekness is being willing to leave everything in God's hands. He is our loving Father. And we can just calmly, humbly leave everything to him. And meekness is incredibly strong. Jesus, when he was at his most meek, was incredibly strong. And so our meekness is not weakness. It's the ability to stop faffing about ourselves and really care about other people. It's not being sensitive about what people think about us, but doing what we know God wants us to do, come what may. And it's actually putting other people first. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We've just looked at the fact that Different regimes can't produce a righteous society. The only way that we can have a righteous society is to see God's kingdom brought into the world. And the only way we're going to do that is to seek for righteousness. Now, that works on lots of levels, doesn't it? We hunger and thirst for righteousness in our own lives. We know that we've been forgiven, but that means that we want to live up to that life that God has given us and to do the right thing, not the wrong thing, to be honest and pure like that song said. But it also means that we long for justice and righteousness in our world, and that's a radically different agenda I sometimes wonder as I look at the news just what agenda some of these politicians have got when we've got people who can't afford to heat their homes and can't afford to feed their children and people who are working hard. These aren't unemployed people. People can't afford the things that they need. What agenda is going on there? Surely nothing matters more than righteousness and justice and God's passion for the poor. And if we as God's people here in Stoughton can't reflect that longing that out of, out of wrong there will be right, out of deceit there will be truth, out of the abuse of the poor there will be some kind of liberation. Isn't that what Jesus said he'd come to do? The Spirit is the Lord is, is upon me because I've come to give sight to the blind, to set the captives free. And if that's what Jesus wanted, we should want it too, with a passion. So he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness in our own lives, for purity, and righteousness in the world as we meekly and graciously present an alternative agenda in which people really matter. Blessed are the merciful. That's a bit of a hard uh, value to find in our society today, isn't it? We live in a terribly litigious society, don't we? If anything goes wrong, um, we've got to find someone to blame. And actually, we are the receivers of the most amazing mercy and grace. 
And if that colours the very heart of who we are, then that doesn't mean that we allow injustice to happen. If there has to be litigation, there does. We live in a society which has a system um, of justice and protecting law. But it has to be on the basis of that which is right, not just on the basis of vengeance and retribution. And there is a difference. It's almost as though being poor in spirit and meek enables us to be those who seek that kind of uh, justice with mercy because we know how important mercy is. Would you like to be a doctor who knows that if he gets something slightly wrong in an operation, someone could die? I wouldn't. And yes, it's right that if there are faults in the system that we expose them and make sure that they can be put right, but not in a way which is vengeful because we have received mercy and those around us long for mercy. Let us be the merciful, the ones who show that there is a better way. I remember when uh, one of the things that I believed in very strongly when I was teaching, and I dealt with some, <laughs> some pretty nasty youngsters sometimes, but for me the important thing wasn't that the punishment fitted the crime, but the person who had committed that crime went out knowing there was a different way to be. That's mercy. Mercy is saying, yes, you've done wrong and you've got to pay for it, but actually, I love you. God loves you. There is a way forward. And that's what we've got to be. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We have been shown mercy, haven't we? The most amazing mercy through the cross of Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is, of course, about all the other Beatitudes, but it's also about the state of our heart. What is your heart like? You know, what, it's not just what you do, like Gandhi and Mark said, you know, this is a very good set of, um, of precepts for a, a good society. It's not about that. It's not what you do. It's what's going on in here. Where are you with Jesus Christ? And you know what? It says that we've got to be pure in heart because we're going to see God. I mean, how would you like to suddenly find yourself face to face with God when we come to meet him at the end of our life or in heaven? What are we going to offer him? Something which is impure? Something which is fouled up? Something which is messy? I'm afraid so, probably, but through the grace of Christ, we want it to be as pure as it can be. Let our hearts be renewed by the indwelling of his spirit tonight as he shows us how he wants us to be his pure people. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's just the opposite of self-assertiveness and divisiveness. There's a lovely bit in 1 Timothy 1 where he says, don't let people dispute with one another and just want to win the argument. It's not profitable. It's not what it's about. I remember once when I was a student um, spending an evening, it was a sort of party type thing, I guess, a gathering, talking to someone. I was blooming going to argue them into the kingdom if it was the last thing I did. Uh, and I had every argument they had, I had an answer. I was really good at answers. I could blag it like anyone. And then it got to the end and he said, well, you've won all the arguments, but I'm not convinced. That was a very big object lesson to me. And so aggressiveness, assertiveness, trying to win is not the way that Christ calls us to be. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. We're children of God. We have that incredible privilege 
that we can go out from here and say, I'm not just a child, I am a child of God. That's even better than being a prince or a princess, a child of royalty. I'm a child of the living God. I don't need to make war on the world in order to prove myself. I need to bring the peace and the reconciliation of Christ. Do you remember in, the, um, in South Africa after those dreadful troubles, Desmond Tutu and these councils of reconciliation, what a giant of a man he was, trying to bring people together when they had every right for, to, to, to aim for retribution. And he said, no, blessed are the peacemakers. And what is peace? Shalom, God's wholeness. Do we long for wholeness for those around us? If there's someone that really gets up your nose and that you sometimes have a, a quarrel with, are you prepared to pray tonight for God's shalom on them, that they will know his peace and his wholeness? Blessed are you when you are persecuted, insulted, maligned, the purpose of this beatitude here is to emphasize that Christ's manifesto for our inner life, our personal behavior, and our social life as a church is so different from the prevailing culture that it will cause us to a greater or lesser extent to be rejected by the mainstream. It will happen, and if it's not happening, then it may be that we're not being different enough, that people should see that our approach is different. And if they don't like it, and they sometimes cause us to feel uncomfortable, well, Jesus said, blessed are you when you're maligned, misunderstood. It will happen. It happened to Jesus more than we can even begin to imagine in our minds. Not that suffering is ever good. I'm not saying that, you know, if you suffer, then that notches up a few brownie points in heaven. But it does say that we accept that Jesus said, Take up your cross daily and follow me. These Beatitudes are a way of life, which is a recipe for the most amazing peace and grace and unity with God and for the most amazing persecution if it comes to that. They are both. Just a little word about blessing. Blessed. It's a funny word, isn't it? It's used quite a lot lately. Have you had um, emails and things where someone says, oh, bless. You know, it is a bit, isn't it? It's very sort of, you know, bless. What does that mean? I saw a lovely phrase that said, being blessed is being made happy by God. I rather like that because it's a happiness, but it doesn't come from things or from anything else. It's something that God pours on us by his graciousness. Because you see, his kingdom is a kingdom with joy at its heart. His kingdom isn't a kind of, uh, like building the pyramids, you know, sort of dragging chunks of stone around. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of joy and it's linked to the choices we make. God longs to bless us. Makarios, his blessing. He longs to pour his blessing on us. And as he does so, then we have the kingdom of God at so many levels, the kingdom of God in our hearts for they shall have the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God expressed through our lives so that we can spread his kingdom life around us. And the kingdom of God is our future, our eternal hope that however things go in this world, God has promised us a new heaven 
and a new earth where these very benefits will be there. Blessed are us, those who accept this way of life. They will inherit the earth, the new earth. They will see God. They will know his intervention, his comfort, his mercy and his forgiveness. They're children of God and they will have a reward in heaven. All these are about the amazing, poured out love of God for each one of us. They're not about a set of commands. This isn't one of those sermons where you go away feeling guilty that says, oh dear, you're not very pure in heart, are you? Um, It's actually quite the opposite. It's saying this is what God wants to give us, a way of life which is whole and satisfying. Most of all, these words inspire us to trust him who is trustworthy. And they invite us to recommit our whole lives from the very inside out to be made afresh by his spirit. The things that we value, the person that we are. We're going to stand and we're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we want to come before you again tonight as your people. And we know that in so many ways, this manifesto of how we should be in our relationship with you, bringing to you our brokenness and our poverty, aware of our need, mourning all that's wrong in us and in the world. And Lord, we we get it wrong. And I just pray that this evening, you will show us how we've got it wrong, where we're not meek, but self-pushing, where we're not pure, where we don't have the right priorities, that we want our own success above trusting you. Holy Spirit of God, just fall on us now and make us the people that you want us to be. Make us aware of how poor in spirit we are. Show us how to mourn for the brokenness of our lives and of the world. Make us meek as we trust you to provide everything we need. Make us righteous and merciful. Thank you, Lord, that in this relationship with you, you offer us everything that is good about your kingdom. Help us to take it into our week and to take your love and your grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.